Welcome to episode four of the Rally for Results. I'm Claire Richards, your host, and I am joined today by Brian Kavicki. Brian is the vice president and co-owner of Lucian, and Lucian is an organization that specializes in sales training, but they do a lot more than that. I'm very, very excited to have Brian with us today. He's helped, he's helped out our company a lot, and I'm excited to hear what he has to share. So Brian, why don't we start by just having you introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you got where you got. So I, um, I grew up in the Chicago area, um, went to Purdue University, and then upon leaving Purdue, I was, I was kind of the kid that went, I don't care where I go, it's just not gonna be here. Um, I went out to California for about nine years, and I was trained to be a turnaround manager. And it was in the electrical wholesaling business, so I'm in my early 20s learning a new business and at 24, I was given the keys to my first location where I was working in a small city, selling electrical product to electricians and end users and had a small staff. And then um, after that, a manager got promoted. I took over his spot. A manager got promoted. I took over his spot. So I was, I was kind of taking over locations that were doing okay and it was my job to make them better and not reliant on the manager so they they oh. they all they used us as trainees as people that were good at stabilizing things because the, everyone was afraid that when the leader left the business would fail so we would set it up so that the business could operate without a leader that we we upped their people and did that stuff so that's kind of what my first job out of school was. And then my father-in-law recruited me back home after we had our first kid to be a succession plan for an industrial contracting business. Hmm. And what we did is we did water and wastewater treatment plants, lead plants. You think of everything nasty or everything manufactured. We knew how to go into any situation and do either maintenance, repair work. Um, we could uh, just, we were solving crazy problems. And um, as I ran that business, like I was supposed to, he decided to travel more and get out of the business. And then as we approached 2008, 2009, and business got a little scarier, he got back into the business. We clashed a lot more about how the business should be run. And we we ended up kind of parting ways uh, like 2009, 2010. As part of my um, leadership of his company, I had led the sales team to Lucian because I was really good at selling and leading sales teams but I couldn't get my salespeople to be better. So I hired them as a mechanism to make my people better. And then when I decided to leave, I went, you know what? I think that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to just help people get better, help managers, leaders get better. So I'm gonna put myself in a position where I do that all the time. And I think this is the platform to do this. So I've been doing this since 2010 just basically working with CEOs and their teams to set themselves up for faster growth than they can get themselves. 
That's that's fascinating. So when you go back to that very first job that you described and that practice of making them future proof, regardless of whether the manager were to leave, do you think that influenced just like the foresight that you would have to have to begin planning some of those? Um, I guess I don't know what you would call it. It's an, an insurance plan. Basically, do you do you see that as heavily influencing the direction you went? So, yes, I think Steve Jobs has the quote, it's always easier to connect the dots looking backwards than to connect <laughs> the dots looking forwards. And, and, and I think you're right. I, I still use some of those stories, even in my training and, and as pl platforms for lessons. Um, one, of the, one of the lessons was that um, when I was a trainee, I was only two years in the business. I was in the Bay Area. And the manager that I was working with, basically in their training, they put you at a location that was good at the thing you were learning. So I learned how to drive the forklift and run a warehouse from the best people that ran a warehouse, et cetera. So I was in sales in a great market in a big location. And the manager gave me a list of clients and said, here's all the clients we can't get. And they were big clients. They were they were companies that he was like, well, I'm not paying for this guy. So if he brings in anything, it's all gravy. And it was an impossible list. And one of the things that I did is I just did what I thought I should. And I got one of the largest contractors to start buying from us. And all I did was ask him, so what's it take to get your business? And the guy said, I want you to come to my office Tuesday mornings at nine o'clock and sit in that chair. Most of the time I'm going to say I have nothing, but if you keep showing up, I'll eventually have business for you. And I went, okay. So I did it. <laughs> and I show up every week at nine o'clock and he'd go, I don't have anything. After about three weeks, he started giving me business. And after two months, he introduced me to the CEO as somebody he was going to give business heavily to. And, and all the vendors in town heard I met with the CEO and they said, how'd you get a meeting with the CEO? And I was like, well, it's just my style. You know, that's just how I do things. I didn't know anything. <laughs> Nobody had ever trained me. I just figured this was the best way. I had another client there that um, she she said, I don't want to buy from you. You know, I'm buying from people. I'm happy. And, and I said, okay, I got to get creative. So I went to the drugstore. I bought a bottle of one a day vitamins and I called on her and I said, look, I want you to be healthy. So I bought you this bottle of one a day vitamins. You take one a day and every day you take one. I want you to think, have I given Brian an order today? And I don't need your good orders. You can give me your garbage. As long as you give me one a day, you and I are going to get along. And she goes, I love that. That's so good. And started buying from me. So back in the day when I didn't have a clue, I was doing some pretty cool stuff even then. And, and I was 20, my last location, I think I started at when I was 26. And I inherited a sales team that was all 25, 30 year veterans in the business. These guys were not going to listen to me ever. I mean, the, my first day, the, the top sales guy walks up to me. And he goes, do you shave yet? And this was a guy I signed his paychecks and he's treating me like that. So what I would do is I, I asked the guys, I said, give me a list of all the businesses you guys can't go get. 
same playbook I learned in San Francisco. And I would go out, get those clients, bring them in. And then the sales guys would go, well, how'd you do that? We've been working for 20 years. We couldn't get them. And then it was like, oh, okay, well, let's talk about how you're selling. So yeah, I do think that that created some great foundations of, of solidifying my instincts. But the difference between I know what I'm doing and I am doing well are two different things. It's one of the problems that I had later on is I was good at selling, but I couldn't get my people to. Um, it, it's actually a non-transferable skill set. If you if you don't know purposefully why what you're doing works, you can't give that skill to somebody else. So that's one of the places I find myself is 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 giving that CEO who is good at selling, has grown their business, but somehow can't get the salespeople to sell at their level. It's because they don't know how to teach them. They don't know how to transfer that skill set to them. And so that's a space that I really look for and focus on because I had the same problem. So in some of the conversations I had with other team members that had a lot of interaction with you as a coach, you know, one thing just kept coming to the surface, which was like right off the bat, you started to tackle some of the the deeper issues or um, maybe like things that happened in their childhood that were even then affecting the way that they would sell. So if they came from a family that wasn't particularly well off, then maybe they're going into those sales meetings thinking like everybody is tight with their money and then that's how they treat each of those situations. So talk to me a little bit about that, like digging in deep and understanding the psyche of the salesperson and how it affects the process. Well, the first thing is you have to understand that every person's development happened between zero and six years old. So we're about 90% developed as an adult when we're six-year-old. So those people out there that have six-year-olds that are terrorists, you got problems because that's your adult. You're not going to change much. The rest, the rest of development is through the upper teenage years and the college years. Or, or the first time job years. Um, so if I know that everybody has zero to six as the main time for their development, everything that happened during that time is significant for how they're acting or reacting to things as an adult. So that's why those questions came up is, well, you're afraid to talk about money. Why did you grow up in a poor family? Did mom say things like, we can't afford it, there's no money? Well, there's the connection. I need you to start learning how to think like a rich kid did so that those things become normal. Or, you know, a lot of people said things like, uh, don't talk to strangers as you were growing up as a kid. Well, as a salesperson, that's your job is talking to strangers. You got this little voice in your head saying, don't do it. And you're getting paid to do it. That, that's a big problem you have to overcome. So looking for those core things and, and fixing the viewpoint that was set in that long ago is actually the quicker fix to a problem than giving somebody a skill set or a technique to solve something. Because even with that skill or technique, they're going to be uncomfortable delivering it if there's a voice in their head saying, don't do it. That is 
so so true i think about myself in that regard and i think one of the hardest jobs would be like a fundraiser somebody for a nonprofit that has to go ask companies for money and i think that comes just from my own childhood where it was rude to do that it was really rude to ask people for money and that's like not even thinking about how those companies might want to give that money and it might benefit their company to do so and it might align with their core values it's just like this voice inside my head that's like that's so rude to ask for money right but you also have a voice of reality in your head of what happens when you give a charity you believe in money how do you feel mm -hmm. you feel great right so the issue there is that your discomfort in asking money is actually interfering when give with giving that person a good feeling about giving what you're asking them to give for money. You're saying you're saying my need to feel bad and avoid this conversation is greater than the joy I can give you by giving you a path to give to something that aligns with your core value. It's totally selfish behavior, but your intention is not selfish at all. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. Um, another thing that came up a lot was just facilitating decisions. And I was reading a lot of the blogs that you have on your site, and you talk about that a lot, decision making and how as a salesperson, it's your role to facilitate decisions. Um, and I thought that was fascinating because I think people are so afraid of hearing the word no in that process when a lot of what you've shared through your content and to our team is that that's not necessarily a bad thing. Well, it's only a bad thing if you want it more than they need it. You know, if, if I want to sell you, but I'm not a good decision for you or your business, I'm, it's technically unethical for me to do that because now I'm doing it for me, not you. So the, the facilitation of a decision is let's figure out what's right or wrong for this client or what the best thing for them to do or not do is. If my primary thinking is I want this business that interferes with my ability to facilitate that decision because I may not be the right decision. So switching that to it's people thinking that salespeople are there to influence decisions and to get people to say yes is selfish behavior. Facilitating is let's figure out what makes sense and is the right thing to do. If that happens to be us, then great. But most people don't know how to buy from other people. You know, if I said, uh, I need a blimp, you wouldn't know how to buy a blimp. If I said you need to buy IT services for your company, you may or not, may not know the best way to buy that. So teaching people through how you sell, how to buy you and how to evaluate you and what the decision criteria should be and are you considering everything becomes critical to helping somebody make the right decision. So what are some of the things that you see time and time again within sales teams that go against that, you know, acts of selfishness, as you point out. Acts of selfishness right now is top of the list. Um, you have the selfishness to not call on people because 
you think it's a bad time to call on people because of the pandemic or things like that. That's selfish behavior. You see a lot of the emails going out right now. I want to get time on your calendar. I want to talk to you. Their intention is to get what they want, not what might not be a waste of time for a client. Um, that's, that's a huge deal right now, especially as people are under pressure. Um, the other side is the, the powerlessness. Uh, you know, I have clients that sell to major manufacturers, huge companies, automotive businesses, and those businesses are trained to make you feel insignificant, even though they need you as part of the process. So there is no fairness. It's I win, you lose as they treat salespeople poorly. They threaten them, all those things. So, so teaching that side of how do you have more power because you actually have power to, to be treated fairly and to work fairly with somebody is, is a huge issue because they feel like they've been brainwashed. I've, I've got to give in the customer's right all the time. You know, the customer is going to fire us if we don't do this for them, which isn't real. Um, the other thing is that most salespeople don't know what they're doing. Um, they, they haven't been trained. They might have been informally trained. They might have a slight roadmap, but they really don't know what they're doing or what is going to be effective. And so, you know, imagine that you start your job and you have very little direction on where to go. You're going to get a lot of no's. You're going to fail a lot, which makes it more discouraging. And that's now the source of your income is how much you sell, you don't, you don't do very well. So then you change jobs to another place and another place. And so you have all these salespeople who have never really learned the foundations or what's right, doing a job that everybody thinks is easy. You just got to go talk to people. You got to go ask them questions. You got to ask them if you got to ask for their business. None of that's what real selling is, but nobody seems to know that. Or, 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 or want to deal with it's, it's like taboo. You know, it's it, the, the analogy is it's sort of like sex training. You know, everybody <laughs> could probably use it, but no one's willing to admit, okay, that would be good for me. And so this, this whole idea of sales being a taboo word where people are changing their cards to business development or account leader or something, they want to avoid that word. They want to avoid, any any level of okay i got to use this to get better and, and that's really not understanding what i should do in the first place those are the so, bigger problems so when you enter a relationship with a new client and you're starting to uncover some of those gaps what do you tend to work on first management so most sales managers are put in that position because they were the best salesperson or they were the ones who they couldn't figure out where else to put. So when we when we assess sales managers, 85% of them are totally ineffective and half of them we can't even fix. There's just no hope. There's, there's nothing there to build on. So when you've got that small group of could be effective but not effective, you got to start with that because people aren't going to work for a manager long who, who can't develop them, can't help them, can't teach them. So we always start with management, making sure that they're strong 
And then we work on the salespeople to give them the skills that the managers can manage too. But you always start with management. And so with your client relationships, the decision maker in bringing you in, is that usually the person in that position or is it someone above them on the hierarchy? Well, I'll, I'll answer that this way. It's never, never within 10% that person. I was, yeah, I was just curious what you say if, yeah. Yeah, the sales, sales managers are afraid to be exposed. They're afraid to ask for help. I mean, imagine you're hired as a sales manager and you go to the CEO and you say, hey, uh, you hired me, but I'm not really good at my job and I'm not really qualified for it. So I need help. So I want to bring in a sales expert to help me. You, you can't have that conversation. So even the ones that have come to me and said, I need help. I say, great, let's rehearse the conversation you're going to have with the CEO. And they're like, oh, that'll sound like I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it, it's usually the CEO who realizes that there's frustration with their sales manager, that their sales manager is not equipped and the people are having lots of problems and that's not the right leader and, and to really start there. And typically if that sales manager is open to the idea of learning from somebody, they're in that can be competent group, but, but rarely is a manager going, oh, I need help. I, I, I probably have three, but lots of CEOs who are selling and acting as a sales manager will approach me and go, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to make this work. I need help. That That's totally different. So a term that you threw around a lot in our relationship with you was head trash. Can you talk about that a little bit? Um, so, so head trash is technically beliefs that you believe are true, but are not working in your best interest. So you are, you are hinging your behavior based on a belief that works against you. So one would, you know, one head trash would be one I said, don't talk to strangers. Going out and selling and interacting with people with that belief in your head that it's bad to talk to strangers would dramatically affect your behavior. Um, some of the more common sales ones are, I need to educate prospects. I need, the, I need to educate them on what we're gonna do to solve their problems, how we're gonna solve their problems, how pricing is done, what our solution is, because they can't make a decision until they have a quote in their hand and the whole syllabus of how we're gonna help, not actually true. And you can see that that's not true. If you had a need for heart surgery and you went to the heart surgeon and you had just had a heart attack, would you ask that doctor to, pro to provide a quote for you as long as with a detailed syllabus of what surgery is going to be? Every, or are you going, can you fix me or not? Good. If you can, I'm in. And let's get in the surgery room. So that belief is held by a lot of salespeople, not, not true at all. Another one is um, starting low in the food chain and selling your way up. A lot of salespeople believe that if I start at the bottom and work with the people at the bottom, those people will, will want to buy from me 
and they will take me to the real decision makers. Well, reality is, is that that decision maker is going to make the decision whether you start at the bottom or start at the top. So why don't I just start at the top and get deferred down to the people who actually want me around? That's also a false belief. So all these beliefs of, of, of things in your head that work against you and prevent you from doing the right things is head trash. And, and the, the shocking thing for most clients is that the opposite is actually true. You know, if, if I've been running around thinking I need to educate prospects, well, the opposite's true, which is you don't need to educate prospects in order to sell. Well, that's a huge adjustment to make. I can't just throw that belief out and go, oh, I'm going to flip a switch today and act that way. I've, I've had that belief for a long time. So it's the process of working them through that head trash, helping them to understand that the opposite is actually true by showing them how the, the opposite is true and then kind of cycling their behaviors around that. That's, that's kind of why it's called training and not class is because training takes a while. Class is just a concept. So switching gears just a little bit here, you're a pilot, isn't that right? And, and so where did that come from? It just, when you look at all the things that you've done, the pilot piece seems like so separate from those things in some ways. So tell me about that. Well, it, it is and it isn't. So, um, I, I was, um, I had always wanted to fly and flying was my passion. That's what I wanted to do. And so I went down the flight path, including going to the Air Force Academy. And what happened was um, I had gone on Christmas break my sophomore year to a ski resort in Wisconsin and, and ski resorts in Wisconsin are like borderline ski resorts. They're really ice resorts. <laughs> and so I'd learned to ski on ice and there was a hill where there was a jump that I was taking. And this was before you wore helmets. Um, I got cut off on that jump. My tips caught in the jump, flipped me onto my head and I had a slight unconscious I was probably unconscious for 10 seconds and then um, had a concussion, but I am, had amnesia with my concussion. Oh. So I actually went back to school in January and the, we, the way that my school year was, was that you went to school the first semester, you went on Christmas break, you came back and you took your finals for first semester and then you started second semester. So I came back to take my finals and my teachers and I realized that I had forgotten everything that I'd learned in school that year. Now that sounds super <laughs> convenient, but I was like a straight A student yeah. up to that point. So yeah. it was weird that I didn't know anything that they taught. Wow. So I got excused wow. from finals. Um, that summer I went to be an exchange student in Denmark. I'd gotten a scholarship to go to Denmark for the whole summer. And I, and it came back to me while I was in Denmark because I was speaking in very simple English and, and stuff. Huh. Well, that concussion with amnesia, when I went to apply for the Air Force Academy, showed up in my medical. So I had a congressional nomination. I had the grades. I had the physical fitness. I had everything you needed. And the medical said, 
you've been unconscious, you've had amnesia, you're out. We're not even going to go for a waiver. So that's why I went to Purdue. Purdue was my second choice because the Air Force Academy was, was a no, even with that congressional nomination. Wow. I had no idea it was that stringent. Oh, yeah. It's, it's really stringent. Air Force is super stringent from a vision perspective, from a, um, mm. from a concussion. You, you can't take the G's and, and stay and do that. So once that happened, I said, okay, well, I can't fly for a job. So I guess I'll just have to do a job where I make enough money to fly. And that's how I pursued that passion is to do it that way. Do you look back on that moment on the ice hill with regret? I mean, you would have, you could be totally in a different life right now. Nah, it's all meant to be. I I don't, I don't think there's any coincidence or anything that's not purposeful. Um, You know, you, you look at the Air Force and you could say, okay, that's service to your country. I've helped a lot of businesses and a lot of owners of businesses and a lot of salespeople and stuff who have much better lives today than what they would have had and how I've helped. So there's a ton of purpose and meaning behind this that I wouldn't have got to do if I wouldn't have gotten to this spot. So what do you fly? What, what, when do what I do fly? You, no, what do you fly? Um, I fly right now um, single engine piston airplanes. So basically airplanes that fly with gas, not jet fuel. Um, just about any size that that comes in. And so do you fly to client meetings a lot of the time? Yeah. I'll fly to go visit clients if it makes sense. Um, I'll fly for vacations. I'll fly because it's a Tuesday and I just want to go fly. But yeah, client travel is actually a lot easier when you you can control your schedule a lot more where you're not rushing to leave the client to catch a flight or you can Mm. hang out for an extra hour because we're in the middle of something. As long as there's not a weather pressure saying, hey, you got to go, you have a lot more flexibility. What's the scariest experience you've had flying? Um, the scariest experience. So I had bought a plane, um, when I lived in Los Angeles, that was a 1957 airplane and it was, it was in mint condition. It was a great airplane, but the avionics, all the instruments in it were pretty dated. And I had finished my transition between me learning with the instructor and signing off on getting used to this plane um, for insurance purposes. And I, I, had, I had traveled to Northern California to visit a friend, and I was coming back to Southern California. And uh, during my trip, the whole L.A. basin fogged in. And oh. I've, I found myself in this position where... I had to fly an instrument approach to land, but I wasn't quite ready for it. I wasn't ready mentally for it. I wasn't, I, I had done the approach many times, but I'd never done it really in the clouds. And I was kind of throwing stuff together in a, in a really quick time period to make sure I could do it. 
and I was flying and uh, the controller, basically this approach was you flew into a hill that had an antenna on it. You flew towards this hill and then you turned away from the hill and flew around the hill. And I was flying towards the hill, can't see out the windows. And the controller said, altitude alert, altitude alert, which is basically you're too low. And I was like, ooh, and turned and made a safe landing. But that to me was my was my scariest moment. Um, it was, I mean, the margins for error are massive. So I wasn't like near death or anything, but it was enough to make me go, I got to fly a lot tighter than this. Mm -hmm. And I, so... I didn't fly that plane in instrument conditions that much after that. When I moved to Indiana, where the weather here is way worse than in Southern California a lot, I sold the plane and got a more sophisticated plane. So there's good, good lessons learned, but that was, that was the scariest. That sounds terrifying. So do you see a lot of parallels just with um, some of the things that you had to learn in the journey to becoming a pilot? Do you see a lot of parallels to the sales journey and what some of these salespeople are going through? Um, I, where I mostly see a parallel is, is in the difference between good and excellent. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of people who are good at their job, good at selling. They make a good living doing it, but they're pretty far from excellent because that bar is a lot higher of how do I be the top 1% in my industry? You know, there, there seems to be a lot of stretch there. It, it's the same way with pilots. You, know, you, you can be a really good pilot. You can, you know, you can bounce a landing here and there and, everything's fine. You can, uh, the private pilot standard is you have to be within your altitude of a hundred feet above or below. I mean, that's 200 feet of you're okay at an altitude. That's a lot of cushion. Um, but I try to fly within 25 feet. And, and so the, the whole idea of how do I do this precisely versus how do I do this within a margin of error is, is what I think differentiates people even in their jobs as selling. And, and that's where I notice the difference is that precision seller who knows what they're doing and why they're doing it and can do it over and over and does it like a surgeon versus somebody that's like, so what kind of problems you guys have and is there anything I can help you with? Oh, wow, there's a big margin for error there. That's probably effective, but not precise that's where i see the biggest differences and parallels there's also an interesting connection with um i would say time management there so the the precision with your own time management you've talked a lot about time management um i mean what would you say is the most important aspect for those that maybe struggle with time management um so 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 there's a there's a key flight thing there is that the best pilots fly off of checklists though the the pilots that are good don't need a checklist <laughs> um because they they know the flows they know how things work but they don't use a checklist so you can see the difference you go to an airliner and fly delta airlines those pilots are using checklists where joe blow could get in start the engine and take off he's a good pilot um 
it's the same thing with salespeople is, am I operating based on a plan, a plan for what I'm doing? What are my behaviors? What are my activities? How am I doing things? How am I spending time during my day? And, and do I even have a plan for that? And am I checking myself on the way to make sure I'm on track or off track? That's, a, that's an area where most people don't go looking. You know, am I doing the right things? Am I doing the right quantity of things? Am I having the right effectiveness? Are my KPIs good? And what's that telling me and how do I adjust? So the best salespeople operate that way as, as well. But I, I think time management, it's all about what's important. Um, it, you know, you're going to spend your time wherever you think it's important. And it's about elevating the importance of behavior more than actually managing time. So I want to go back to something you had said early in this conversation about just people defaulting to in this world of COVID and craziness, defaulting to a mentality of, well, I don't want to bother them when they're struggling in so many ways. Can you talk more about that and what other things you're seeing crop up because of COVID? Um, besides the it's wrong to talk to people during this time because they're so stressed out, blah, blah, blah. The, the next biggest one is the push offs. You know, it's um, we're, we're not doing anything right now. We're waiting for this whole coronavirus thing to settle down. Uh, we don't know our budgets. Um, we're there's a lot of uncertainty right now. All that stuff is the same stuff they got six months ago before this all started. It's just showing up in a different format. But but the salespeople are reacting like it's new. Like, you know, a, a year-end budget cycle is, you know, you would hear, we don't know our budgets until January. Well, if you were letting that go then, you're going to let it go now when somebody says we don't have a budget because of coronavirus. It's, it's all just excuses. Um, that is the biggest one is this this idea of it's the wrong time to make a decision. What's happening to the salespeople who are, are hearing those things and letting them go is somebody came in and sold them while you were leaving them alone. Because somebody came in and, and questioned why is this the wrong time and what, why would you wait and pricing's at great levels now you know, if you wait for the right time, you're going to pay more or whatever the reasons are. It, it's just silly push offs. So I find that kind of that objecting, stalling, thinking that it's different now, nothing's actually different. It's all the same. So if you were to go back into sales, I know obviously you're very passionate about um, being the coach and helping companies grow, but let's say you were to go back into sales, what industry would you pick? Um, so, so go back into sales is, is a little bit off because I'm still in sales. Okay. And, 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 and because th think about what I'm selling, I'm only selling me. I don't really have a brand or a product. No, nobody's ever come to me and said, I want to buy Lucian. It's, Hey, I want to talk to you about you. Um, the other thing 
is what I'm selling at a different degree than everybody else because you know if you have a salesperson you're dealing with you're you're sort of you're going this salesperson's good or the salesperson's bad but a lot of times you're buying the thing just because you want it or you need it even though the salesperson might suck so you'll dismiss the performance or the level of selling that somebody's doing when I meet with a CEO they're judging me on how I sell their thinking is are you better than me? Are you better than my people? Do I want my people to sell like you? So I, I am selling at that level all the time. So part of the, the reason I'm saying that is, to me, that's the hardest selling I've ever done, and I can't imagine selling at any level hard. I have not experienced a sale that's harder than that, so I would like selling only at that level. If, if I could never train, and only sell at that level, I'd be very, very happy. That would be the best fun for me. The, the what other industries, ah, it's really hard because a lot of them are so easy where, um, I, I, you know, I had a client today going, can you go to this meeting and just sell this deal for us? And it's like, oh, that'd be fun. It would be so easy, but I, I don't like easy. I like difficult. I like challenging. Um, I, I think selling, um, selling in a world where uh, there's there's hard bids. Um, I have I have clients that make custom products like um, um, submarine missile doors and parts for SpaceX rockets and you know, things that are made once, they're not made over and over and over again. And they sell to government contractors and all these energy companies and stuff like that. And, and that that's really hard selling because you're, you're trying to navigate how you want to sell in a highly structured environment. I would probably enjoy that. And how do I get deep and further into an organization that way? That'd probably be fun. But anything else is sort of easy. So speaking of those types of companies, the ones that are loose enough structure where you can sell the way you want to sell versus those that are working in contracts with the government, which do you prefer to work with to help develop their team? Because I would imagine those challenges are quite different, but maybe not. Uh, it's all about knowing that there is a way to do it. I, I think there's equal joy when I show a team that thought they had no power, how much power they have and what they can actually do and how they get it, that they they grow crazily. And then the other side, the selling is easy, but they just don't see it that way. Um, it's the same, oh my gosh, we didn't know it was this easy. We didn't know it was this fun. I, I get equal out of that. One, one sort of gets more dollars out of that. The, the harder environments get the more dollars, but. Um, Which makes sense. So if you were to leave, and, and I struggle with this question because um, part of me wants to frame it up from the CEO's perspective and part of it, part of me wants to frame it up from the individual salesperson perspective. So maybe answer both. You know, if a person listening to this or watching this were to walk away with one thing that they could start tomorrow, 
what would you recommend that they start doing? I, I think the first thing they need to do is, is to do an inventory of where they stand on the professional scale. Um, so if you look at you, you, uh, the definition of a professional is somebody that's getting paid for what they do, um, to compare themselves to somebody else who's a professional. So whether that's a professional doctor, a professional sports athlete, you know, you look at a professional sports team. If, if I'm a CEO and I look at uh, a professional sports team, I say, okay, I'm gonna compare my, my people and my sales team to the Minnesota Vikings. Let's see how close they come to how we act. Do we practice every day? Do we have a game plan for each game do we have? Do we review film and critique ourselves on what went right or what went wrong? Are we always getting coached? Do we have coaches all around us telling us what to do, how to put our feet, how to throw the ball? Are our top players getting as much coaching as our bottom players? Is the, is the coach managing the big picture and holding it all together? Is the CEO doing what they need to do? And is that inspiring the coaches and the players to perform at a level that is their best at any given time? And they look at their sales team and look at those same exact behaviors and look for those gaps and go, okay, do I have a professional sales team or not? And if I don't, what things do I need to start adding into that in order to be performing at a true professional level where greatness actually occurs, doing that exercise to figure out where those holes are will, will open some eyes. And then fill in the holes. There, there's always a way to fill in the holes. There's always a way to get help and coaching and learning and training and all those things. It's no different than anything else. But but there's a reason that, you know, a, a golfer like Tiger Woods still has a coach. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of salespeople that don't. There's like, no, I'll just do my job, call people, ask questions, you know, sell stuff. Doesn't work that way. So it's really rooted in self-reflection and self-awareness. And and knowing 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 how to look for what could be excellent versus where I am today. Hmm. So fascinating. Well, I think that's all we have time for today. I could talk to you for hours, Brian. Thank you so, so much for joining us today. Um, I highly recommend heading over to Lucian.com to check out Brian's content. He's got great videos, great blogs. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. And, uh, and uh, don't forget to subscribe if you want more great content like this. Head over to our YouTube channel or find us on your favorite podcast app. And I will see you next time. Yeah.